Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the blessings that you've given to us. We're thankful for the, the ministry of the Gideons and what they are doing throughout the world. We're thankful for the power of your word. And we're just so grateful, that, Lord, that we can take the technology that we have today and use them to reach souls for Christ. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you and we give you all the glory. Now we pray that you will bless us in a very special way, that your Holy Spirit will minister us to us through the word. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My subject this morning is, Are You Resting in Christ? Because the Bible encourages us that we should rest in Christ. And not too many people are restful today for some reason. The Bible also says we should be anxious for nothing, but most people are pretty anxious for just about everything. You jump in your car and you go to Northern Virginia and you can become anxious in a hurry. It makes me just want to turn around and get back home. But what is it? Why is it that, that it's so hard for us to rest in Christ? We have a complete Bible now. We have the Old Testament. We have the New Testament. Everyone can read the Bible and see what God says. But the problem is, we can read what it says, but sometimes it's difficult to know what it means. So it's just not reading the Bible it's discovering and allowing God to work through you to understand the Bible. So, he wants us to rest. The reason why many Christians don't experience the rest that God has given us is because of unbelief. It's not that they don't believe in God, that they don't believe in Jesus Christ, they don't believe in the cross. No. Most of the time, they really have a very difficult time to believe what God says about them to be true and what God has done for them to be true. It's too good to be true. In Hebrews 4, 9, um, there, remi there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So, the Bible is not only telling us that we can have salvation, the Bible is saying that there remains a rest for us, that we can rest in Christ, knowing what he has done for us, knowing that he dwells in us, and he's living through us. So we can rest in that. Now, in Hebrews, it's, re it's referring to a Sabbath rest. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So in, in Genesis, in Genesis 2-2, we find out what that rest was about. They refer to it as a Sabbath rest. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Now, why did God rest? I mean, he called the world into existence. Why did he feel that he had to rest? Well, it's not because he was tired, that's for sure. It simply means that he rested from all of his work because it was complete. It was finished. 
it was done. So it indicates there's nothing else to do so you can rest. So in the Old Testament, the people of God, they were promised a rest in the promised land. But did they get it? No. It says here in Hebrews 3.19, so we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Now they believed in God. They believed in Jehovah. They believed that he was their God, that he was their leader, and they were his people. Why did they not enter into that rest? Because they failed to believe what God said was true. And that is our problems today. So why does God want us to enter that rest? He wants all of us to enter that rest because he has been, he has completed the whole process of salvation. He has given to us a new life. We are new creatures in Christ. Rest is required, and it's a response to God's truth. It's only accessible through faith. You have to have faith. You have to believe that it's true. And when you believe that it's true, you'll find that it is. Listen, rest in, the, in Hebrews, it says here in Hebrews, for now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declare on earth in my anger they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. So whosoever or whoever enters into that rest must enter through faith, believing that in Christ we have everything. We are complete. Now that's very hard for us to believe. You've heard me say over and over that the Bible says that you are perfect forever. But you say, wait a minute, there's nothing perfect about me. That can't be true. And so you say, no, that part of it isn't true. There's got to be some explanation for that. The Bible says that you are complete in Christ. And you say, I don't feel complete, so I, I don't know if I can buy into that. Well, believing by faith in every detail gives you the abundant life in Christ. It gives you the assurance that you need in Christ. But here's our problem. In Hebrews 4.11, the Bible says here, Let us therefore make every effort. In the NIV, or excuse me, in the King James, I think it says, let us labor. So it's work. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their examples of disobedience. Boy, that's a tough one, isn't it? Let us therefore make every effort to enter that, into that rest. So apparently we have to have a constant, concerted effort, concerted effort to figure this thing all out. And that's where we have a problem, resting, relaxing, and trusting in Christ. The answer to relaxing in Christ maybe has to do more with unlearning 
some of the things that we were brought up to believe, some of the double talk that we have heard, and maybe that's what we need to do is unlearn some of those things that we have been been bombarded with all through the years. Last week I listened to an evangelical preacher on TV. He was preaching on Matthew 7. And uh, I know of him. I've read one of his books and was blessed by his book. And so I thought to myself, well, it's going to be interesting to see what he says about Matthew 7. So he started out Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I think the New King James says, depart from me, ye that do lawlessness. Well, that's, that's a pretty hard text there. So many are going to say to the Lord, Lord, we don't understand it. Look what we've done. We've done all these wonderful things. And he says, look, I, I, I'm never, I never knew you. And that's the key to the scripture. I never knew you, he says. He says, you were never born again. You were never born of God. You were never born of the Spirit. I never knew you. you were, your name was never written in the, law, in, the, in the Lamb's book of life. I never knew you. And you practice lawlessness. You were an evildoer. I like that practice lawlessness because I think of practicing law. When you're a lawyer, you spend 8 to 10, 12 hours a day going over the law. When you're a doctor, you practice medicine. And you spend many hours a day. These people obviously were practicing evil doing, lawlessness. And if you practice lawlessness, you surely have never accepted Christ as your personal Savior. So this is not talking about Christians. But they are people, and I've met some in my years of evangelism. There are some people that use the Bible, and they use it to get things. They use it as an end of the means. So, this pastor, he proceeded to say that there are going to be, there are going to be teach, uh, preachers and teachers and, and uh, pastors and evangelists who one day are going to stand before the Lord and they're going to hear that word. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity, ye that you were evildoers. I have no part of you. Well, he went on to say that what preachers are trying to do today is make it easy. He said what you hear today is just come Give your life to Jesus Christ. You don't have to worry about anything. You don't have to worry about the law. You don't have to worry about this. And he said that is all that you have to do is these, these people are calling people to the altar, and then they pray the, the sinner's prayer, 
And then he says they tell them that they have nothing to worry about the rest of their life and into, into eternity. Well, according to him, he says it just doesn't work that way. He says when you embrace God, the law of God will be your passion in life. It's your obedience that tells you whether you are in Christ. And then he said, if the law, and I'm quoting, if the law is not your passion, you have found a comfort zone in your delusion. And he talked about the overindulgence of grace that we hear today. He referred to it as super grace. I like that, super grace. But he referred to it, and he was saying that these pastors or these evangelists, they're just making it so easy for everybody, and it's just not that way. And then he even mentions a man's name, and I was surprised at that. He mentioned Joel Olstein. And I thought, well, why would anybody do that to a fellow minister? But he did. He talked about the failure that we have, even this, this whole concept about this overindulgence of grace. And he said that people, pastors, evangelists, are failing to teach that a believer should examine themselves. And he, and he said, especially before the communion service. And then, uh, of course, the gu guidelines for you know, examining yourself is, is whether you're obedient or not. Well, after a sermon like that, what are we to believe? And I thought to myself as I listened to it, and I thought, well, if you read the whole chapter of Matthew 7, and I thought to myself, wh why, what was he thinking? Because the very first verse in chapter 7 and the next six verses have to do with, the, in fact, the first verse says, judge not, lest you be judged. So the first six verses had to do with judgment. And then the next six verses talk about asking, seeking, and the door opening. And then the next verses from 15 to 20 talks about by their fruits you shall know them. You know, I've heard that text through the years. By their fruits you shall know them. You know what that has developed into? We have a lot of fruit inspectors in the churches today. <laughs> and they're checking you out to see whether you're following all of God's rules. Now, the average person is thinking, I'm not a theologian. In fact, I hardly read my Bible that much. And what's confusing to me is those who seem to read it a lot, those who study it, those who make a life work out of studying the Bible, they can't even agree. 
And so what we have here in this country, we have 300 different denominations, and they're all reading out of the same book. And the real confusing part about it is all of them use this one scripture. The Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. All of them. And they believe what they believe because the Holy Spirit had led them into that truth. So it becomes confusing. Sometimes religion is like a buffet. You know, you go to a buffet and if you look long enough and hard enough, you'll find something that you like. And that's sort of what religion is. If, if you are a if you are a believer in hellfire and brimstone and you think that gets people to the altar, you can find a fellowship that will give you that. If you are what he says that super grace people, you can find a fellowship that will do that. So here we are today, and I am one of hundreds of thousands of preachers who are sharing with their church what they understand the Bible to say. I understand that TV preacher. And when I read his book, I thought it was a good one. Because the first 15 years of my life in my, as, a, as a minister, I shared the same thoughts that he had. I had the same passion for the law of God. You have heard me say many times that I praise God for all those who preach the message of the cross. For 15 years, I preached half the gospel, but it was the half that saved. It was an invitation for those to accept Christ as their personal Savior. It was an understanding that Jesus Christ died on the cross and he died for the sins of the world. That the sin issue was over. In my understanding, that 90, over 90% of all the different denominations are teaching that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that He died for the sins of the world, and that if you accept Him, that you can receive the gift of eternal life. And for this, I praise God for. Listen, Having the right theology on every subject doesn't save anyone. We are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ alone. We are not saved by our theology. But I have to admit that theology will help you to experience the abundant life in Christ. It may give you an understanding of who you are in Christ. It may help you with your identity in Christ. It may help you to understand how the flesh works. It may help you to understand how the Apostle Paul says, I don't understand it, the things that go through my mind sometimes. I don't get it. And then he says, but it's not me. It's not me. It's sin that dwells within me. It's my flesh. And when I look at a Christian 
I don't care who that Christian is, if he's accepted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, he is a child of God. He may be a child of God struggling with whatever. The struggle is not the, doesn't make any difference. But it gets confusing. We hear a lot of double talk. It's like the predestination puzzle in Ephesians. Where some believe that God chose one person and not the next. I had a good friend up in Alexandria, Virginia. And he was a pastor of a Presbyterian church. And him and I often got together and we discussed theology. He's just a wonderful, godly man. In his family, he, there was five boys, and all of them became preachers. And I asked him one time, I said, uh, Tom, I said, I'd like to talk to you about this predestination. I said, I've seen all the texts, you know, where God chose you and God knew you while you're in your mother's womb, all these things. I says, but do you really believe that God goes down the road, down the street here in Braddock, on Braddock Street in, in Alexandria and says, you're in, out, in, in, out? That God chooses and you have no say in the whole matter? And then, Tom, I says, the average individual, he may come home after hearing a sermon like that and open up his Bible, and he might be reading Romans 10, 13, and there, Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls. Now, you may have some theological jumps to, to make to say that God knew they were going to make that decision, that God knew that they wanted to be saved, whatever that is. But I said, it's, it becomes confusing to the average person. And you get a picture of, you get a wrong picture. And all of a sudden, you have a hard time understanding and relaxing in Christ. When Paul was saying in Ephesians, he says, we were predestined. And who was Paul? Paul was a Jew. And he says, we Jewish people were predestined to be saved. And then he goes on to say, and you also. Well, who is the you also? Well, the you also is the Gentiles. It's you and I. And so there seems to be a logical answer. But there's not a logical answer when all of a sudden, yes, you're in, you're out, in, 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 out. No. That's not a, that's not a logical answer. And so it becomes confusing. And one begins to wonder, well, what do I believe? Well, throughout my years as evangelist, I found that most Christians want to know and they want to have a personal relationship with Christ. I don't know of anybody who's accepted Christ as their personal Savior who did not really want that. They just didn't know how to do it or how to get it. They didn't know who they really were in Christ. And then when they hear somebody stand up like I do and sometimes say, that sin will not keep anybody out of heaven, only unbelief, they think, oh, wow, is that really true? 
Is that really true? Aren't we accountable for our sins? And then they might have heard a, a scripture that, that gives you that indication. But when you read the whole message, when you whole, read the whole thing, you find out that God has a wonderful plan for you. He wishes above all things that all would be saved. Yes, it can be confusing. It's even confusing picking up and reading the Bible. That can be confusing too. I used to tell the people when I, when I was an evangelist and I would get with the people afterwards, I used to tell them, listen, those of you that are just starting the Bible, let me recommend something to you. Start with the epistles. Don't start with the gospels. Start with the epistles. Paul's writings. And find out who you are in Christ. First, then go to the gospels. And the gospels will make more sense. If you go to the gospels first, it might cause you to be a little bit confused. Well, you can imagine how you felt when you first read the Bible. Did you understand the teachings of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? Probably not. And when you read Matthew 5, did you wonder how in the world could this be true? How could Jesus, now Jesus was speaking. How, Jesus says that, that anger equals murder. Is that true? Jesus said it, anger equals murder. Jesus said that looking at a woman with lust, it's the same as adultery. Is it the same? I don't know of a man that would agree with that one. And then he said, you must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. That's what Jesus said. And Jesus said that if you really want to follow me, if you're really serious, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. Is that what we're supposed to do? And then he said, you'll be forgiven only if you forgive others. Now be honest with me. How many of you have heard that? Heard a sermon preached on that? That God is not going to forgive you unless you forgive somebody else. And you've got to do that first. And you've got to prove you've got to do something to get your forgiveness. And you've got to forgive that other person first. You've got to go to them. You've got to confess to them. You've got to do all these things. Well, I guess our question is, did Jesus actually mean what he said? And I believe he did. I believed he believed every word of what he said. And here's why. In Galatians, see if I can bring it up, in Galatians 4, 4 to 5. But when the time, when the set time had come, fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born of under the law to redeem those under the law 
that we might receive, that you and I might receive the adoption into sonship. So it's pretty plain that Jesus Christ was preaching to the Jews, to those that were under the law. Jesus was born a Jew, was born under the law. He kept all the Jewish laws. And so what he did, he was showing them that that old covenant from the Old Testament wasn't working. It just wasn't working. And that they desperately needed something different. And so he presented an impossible standard. Nobody could do what he said, and he knew it. Nobody can do it. And so we find out that really the, why, the reason that he did that, the reason he presented things that way, is because he was paving the way for the new covenant. He was paving the way of grace that would take place after he was crucified on the cross. Our passion is not the law. Our passion is Christ and what he did at the cross for us. In Matthew 7, it says, You will be forgiven only if you forgive others. That's the old covenant. That was true. What he said was true. It was the old covenant. But listen to the new. In in Romans 3.20, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the work of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sins. Nobody is going to be, nobody is going to enter into heaven because they kept the law. Nobody has been able to keep the law. But the law was there that pointed us to Christ. In Ephesians 4, 32, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Now, it's directly the opposite of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant said that you had to forgive first, then God would forgive you. The New Testament says that God, that the reason you forgive is because God has already forgiven you. He's already forgiven you. And then in Colossians 3, 13, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you have a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's the new covenant. That's the New Testament. How can a person rest if you're led to believe what it says in Matthew 5? Do you really believe that you could be perfect? No. Do you really believe that you were in hellfire, in danger of hellfire, if you got angry at somebody? That's what the Bible says. So it's not what the Bible says, it's what the Bible means. We receive perfection and righteousness as a gift, the Bible says. For 
If by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provisions of grace and of the gift of righteousness? That's perfection. The gift of righteousness. The Bible says you are perfect forever. Why? Because you received the gift of righteousness. You are perfect in your heart. Not your body, not your mind, in your heart. In your heart, you do not want to sin. The Christian who has accepted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior and received and knows that God performed a heart transplant on him, that he took out that stony heart and he put in his heart. And that heart does not sin. Does not. And that's why in 1 John the Bible says that those who are in Christ Jesus will not sin. No, their heart will not sin. Their body, yes, but their heart won't. Now, I mentioned before that the TV preacher said that those deceivers who teach all this stuff, he says um, that no longer teach the Bible, he says that you're to examine yourself before you are partakers of the Lord's Supper. I'm sure most of us have been in services where the communion service is Um, sometimes uh, according to the message that was preached before it um, it leaves you almost the impression that you have to somehow examine your sins and see whether they're forgiven or whatever I'm not sure exactly what his thoughts were but I would encourage you to take 1 Corinthians 11th chapter yourself And read through that and come to your own conclusion. So I want to go to to Corinthians, 11 Corinthians 28. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. That's pretty plain, isn't it? We can all understand that. The Bible says that everyone ought to examine themselves before they take the bread and drink from the wine. So is that true? Well, that's what the Bible says. And a lot of people say, well, read it and weep. That's what it says. There it is. It's as plain as day. But is that what the Bible means? You see, back then at the Lord's Supper, when that was celebrated, it was a complete meal. And some were showing up early and weren't waiting for the others. And uh, they started eating and they started eating up all the food and they were drinking all the wine. And so here in 1 Corinthians 11.20 it says, So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and the other gets drunk. Now, it's pretty hard for us to get drunk at communion today because we have that little piece of bread and that little thimble of grape juice. Or, and, and some fellowships, they have actual wine. But... <clears throat> So the Bible says, 
As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. There's something wrong with that picture. Uh, and um, it says, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you not despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not. Not in this matter. So the situation was, they were coming, eating the food. Some were getting drunk. Some were passing out. And Paul said, no, no, no. Stop all this stuff. This is not communion. Stop it all. He says, if you're showing up early to get more food and eating all the food and then getting drunk and passing out and then leaving nothing for the poor, then you need to take time to examine your actions. You need to examine yourself. That text has absolutely nothing to do with you trying to qualify for the Lord's Supper. If you're in Christ, you are qualified. All of your sins have been taken care of. They were forgiven and they are remembered no more as far as the east to the west. When it comes to this self-examination over sin part, we know better. The sin issue was settled at Calvary. He died for the sins of the world. We are a new creation, the Bible says. We are born again. We have been born of God. We have been born of the Spirit. We are a child of God. That's who we are. We may be a child of God that's going through a lot of issues right now. We may be a child of God that have, there's a lot of things going into our lives. We may have some difficulties in some areas in our life. Yeah, that's all true. But that has nothing to do with your salvation and who you are in Christ. You are a child of God. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the, the truth of, the, of, the, of this whole matter of, of being in Christ. And, 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 and Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is not only dwelling in us, but he's living his life through us. And we thank you for that opportunity that you've given to us. And right now I pray that you will meet the needs that each one of us have. Some of us have a hard time believing some of this stuff. But Lord, I just pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you will bring us conviction, that you will allow us to have a, a deeper insight into your word, and that you will grant to us the peace that patheth no understanding. We thank you and we ask that you meet the needs that we have, each one of us, and that you will give to us a desire and a love for you in such a way that sin will not be any problem in our life. Guide and direct us, I pray, for we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.